Good to hear everybody visiting and talking. That's wonderful. And uh, we want to extend a warm and cordial welcome to everyone here tonight, especially if you are, are visiting with us. You are our honored guest and uh, hope that uh, you won't rush off too quickly tonight, but give us a chance to express our appreciation to you uh, for your presence with us tonight. And do keep in mind that we will assemble again on Sunday morning at 930 for our worship service and then at five o'clock Sunday afternoon, we will have excellent classes. So we would love for you to be a part of our service uh, on Sunday. Please be sure that you get a bulletin. Uh, it'll have an update on the sick as well as detailed information on other activities. So grab one of those before you leave tonight. I do wanna mention that uh, Tory Cobb is now on his way home from the hospital. Uh, he had an accident at work and uh, was carried to the hospital, and uh, he had stitches and sutures put in his ears. And uh, anyhow, uh, it ended up being a lot better than it really could have been, and we're thankful for that, and we're thankful that he's going to be going home, but he's going to be in a lot of pain, and we still want to remember him in our prayers as well as all these others that are listed and others that we may know about. As far as announcement goes, I want to remind those in the golden circle of our lunch that's going to take place this coming Tuesday at 11.30. Please keep that in mind, and uh, we would love to have even those that have not been in a while or have not been at all. Uh, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that lunch uh, if you've not tried out uh, that group. I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, lads to leaders, there's a lot of activity scheduled for this Sunday. I hope you'll look at the bulletin and, and get those times and places. The convention fee uh, deposits are due now and uh, need to be in the church office by February the 19th. Also, uh, there's going to be a very important elders and deacons and ministers meeting <clears throat> this coming Sunday in the little chapel immediately following the uh, morning worship. So please plan to stay for that uh, this coming uh, Lord's Day following our morning service. That's elders, deacons, and ministers. Also, uh, tomorrow is our food pantry, and uh, we'll have a lot of folks coming that will have a need uh, for food and clothes and so forth. We appreciate those that continue to work to make that a success, and we would love for you to come and uh, see what that's all about. I think you'll be very pleased at what you see. And with that in mind, of course, that's tomorrow from 9 to 10.30. The food pantry item that we would really need you to bring this week is cooking oil. Also, we want to congratulate our own Joshua Taylor. Joshua, where are you at right now? Look, at, look back there in the very back. He is, raise your hand again. He is the Prentice County Spelling Bee Champion. I couldn't even win my own home spelling bee champion, you know. But uh, anyhow, me and Webster have to continually uh, research each other to get things right. But congratulations to him, and I think he'll be going on to state here uh, in Columbus uh, at the 1st of March. So congratulations to him. For our devotional tonight, our song leader is Anthony Acock, and our prayer at the appropriate time will be led by Brother Merrill Crow. Merle Crow. Part number 927 for the invitation. 927. Then turn to number 895. 895. Okay. I'd like to stay here longer than
way, have you noticed it's a little brighter in here? Uh, James Hester spent a couple of days uh, last week uh, putting new light bulbs in the side and things are improved as far as our lights in here. I really like it. We appreciate James for doing that. It was recently reported that a 73-year-old man was pinned beneath his farm tractor for three days and nights in driving rain and freezing temperatures. And uh, concerned friends went to see about him and they arrived just in time. And in spite of his serious injuries, the man was able to survive and he recovered. But the interesting point in this particular story is not the fact that this man amazingly survived this particular incident. The story that's amazing here is, is that why his three friends went to check on him. When they were asked, why did you go check on this particular man? They replied, he wasn't at services on Wednesday night. He's always there. But he wasn't, and we went to check on him. So you see, not missing the assembly saved this man's life. You know, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 20 and verse 18, you shall be missed because your seat shall be empty. What about you tonight? Would you be missed because your seat is empty? Do we consistently strive to live the Christian life, not just by our attendance and services, but by the example that we set every single day on the job or at school or wherever we are. Do people know that we are a Christian and that we're a faithful Christian by our attitude and by the things that we do? You know, the Bible says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life, Revelation 2 and verse 10. So I hope tonight that uh, you'll be challenged to think about your own life, to consider your own faithfulness. And let's make sure that when people think of you, and if you're not here, you will be missed because, you know, your seat would be empty. Maybe tonight you're not a child of God as yet. You haven't yet made that important decision. Tonight would be a perfect opportunity to come and obey the gospel Demonstrate your faith in Jesus as the Son of God by repenting of your sins, confessing uh, his name that he's the Son of God. And tonight you can be immersed in water for the remission of your sins, Acts 2 and 38. And so tonight, if you need to respond to heaven's call, we ask that you come now while we stand and sing. sing the first line of 1014 after our dismissal prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to come into your service and to honor and show our love for you. We pray that you'll just uh, be with us and help us to realize that uh, you are our Savior and Without you, we would be nothing. Be with the others that are 
not here and help them to realize that uh, if they're not uh, hindered uh, from um, some uh, sickness or something or work or something that they should be here and to honor and and uh, praise you. Ask you now to go with us as we go to our classes that we'll get much from them and uh, use it in our everyday life. We uh, pray that you'll just uh, uh, bless us and keep us until the next time we return. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus loves me Good evening again. Uh, it's time for us to go ahead and enter into our period of study, our second uh, lesson in our ongoing study of the book of Romans. Last week we briefly introduced the book and covered the text of chapter 1, and God willing, as time permits, we will go ahead and go through the text of chapter 2 uh, here as well tonight. Uh, just so everyone is aware, uh, if things go as planned, uh, next Wednesday, the 15th, I will not be here. I'll be uh, out of town. It's about time for my uh, Samantha and I to have our uh, respite time, and so we'll be out of town. But in my absence, uh, Doug has agreed to fill in for me, and so I know he will do a good job, and I know you'll be in uh, very capable hands, and then... God willing, after that, on the 22nd, uh, we will go ahead and resume. So again, chapter 2 is where we'll uh, be tonight. And uh, before we begin, uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll bow and uh, begin with a word of prayer. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for all your many blessings that you give to us. We're grateful and honored for this privilege of, be able, of being able to assemble here tonight and to be able to spend this time in your word. And as we study this beautiful yet at times challenging epistle to the church in Rome, help us to open our hearts and our minds and that we'll be able to receive the proper understanding and that we'll be able to apply these things to not only our own lives, but perhaps to be able to help others as we have the opportunity to 
encourage them or whatever their needs may be. We thank you for all that are present here this evening. We ask you to watch over and to be with those that are not present, whatever their circumstances may be, and that they return to us soon, if it be according unto your will. Watch over us, care for us, and always keep us in your care. And for this we ask, and in Christ's name, amen. All right, so you'll recall from our study last week of chapter 1, we looked at Paul's opening uh, to the letter, and then we spent the last bit of our time looking in verses 18 through 32 uh, there, the, some of the things concerning God's wrath and things that uh, did and will uh, incur that to this day. And so then when we come to chapter 2, you notice uh, he opens with therefore. And whenever you see that word, therefore, there is a conclusion that is coming. So we can uh, reasonably conclude that at least part of chapter 2 here is a continuation of what we read in chapter 1. So when we read all of that together, uh, some of these things will make, I think, a little bit more uh, sense to us and help us to understand it a little bit better. So we're going to go ahead and look here in verses 1 through 11 of the continuation of God's judgment. This is the second time already in this text that Paul has used the phrase, you are inexcusable or without excuse. That saying that we have that, uh, that we have sometimes that ignorance is no excuse. That is certainly the case here. Well, why? Chapter one, God revealed himself he has revealed the truth. He has revealed his word. And no matter what period of time that one has or does live in, those truths are evident. And therefore, we are without excuse. But he's going to continue uh, here. Notice he says, whoever you are who judge for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Now, parallel to that, you know, we might think about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for example, Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus' statement uh, there concerning judgment. And I believe in this context, Paul is talking about the same thing, that which is what we would call hypocritical in its nature. You know, we can't rightfully condemn one for doing one thing when we're doing the same thing ourselves. That's the idea uh, that Paul is conveying here. A couple of passages that I'll give for our consideration uh, on that would be concerning this God revealing himself and in judgment uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 24. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 24 and 25. I'll include 25 in that as well. And who do we have that would uh, volunteer to read? Jeremy? All right, if you could read that for us, please. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. All right, thank you. So notice what Paul is saying here in that closing to Timothy. There are some things that are clear, they're before our eyes, but there are other things that, you know, some will act one way in a public setting such as this, but then they'll act entirely different manner in a private setting. And those are the things that I believe the idea that Paul is conveying here uh, to Timothy in that even though some things are not known to us, we need to be reminded that God knows and those things will be judged as well. And in the same manner, 
the good deeds will be known as well. Uh, another passage here real quick, Jeremy, if you would. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, thank you. So again, just wanted to share those passages with you for uh, consideration to kind of draw uh, some parallel to what Paul is telling the brethren in Rome. So what Paul is going to convey here and what we need to understand is that judgment is certain and it is inescapable. Uh, and that is something that we need to think very soberly about as we go about our life and make sure that we are prepared. And the standard of that, of course, is going to be his word. Paul is going to go on uh, to say again, notice verse 2, he says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Well, that would be God's truth, the ultimate revealed truth, not arbitrary standards that man creates for himself, but God's standard, and that is what he is speaking of. But who is this judgment against? Those who practice such things. Now, two things here. One, again, referring back to chapter one, he's probably referring to those things uh, that we looked at in verses 18 through 32. But I would also argue that secondly, he is speaking of what he has already said about those who judge others and do those same things. So the sin itself and then the sin of hypocrisy. Those two things, I believe, are under uh, consideration here. And so we need to be mindful of that. Uh, then he goes on, and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God. And notice that is in the form of a question. Uh, that would be a, I believe, a rhetorical question, one in which we already know the answer to. Any uh, reasonable person who has even the most basic understanding of Scripture will understand that there is no escaping the judgment of God. As he as he continues, he's going to ask another question, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So, in other words, if you're rejecting these things, if you're rejecting this truth, then the only conclusion is, is that you despise or hold in contempt the grace, mercy, and love of God. Well, nobody is going to say that they do that, but what do their actions show? That is quite another matter. And notice what he says, that it's the patience and the long-suffering of God that leads to repentance. That is, God in these attributes, he is giving man opportunity to repent and to come to knowledge and understanding of the truth. But, verse 5, there's the contrast, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will, quote, render to each one according to his deeds. And that, uh, in your Bibles that may be italicized or may be in quotation marks, that is a citation from the book of Psalms. He is quoting Psalm 62 and verse 12. 
So if you want to make note of that and go back and study that passage, it can be beneficial. We need to understand also that these things that Paul speaks of here, God's forbearance and long-suffering, it is not something that is to be abused. Procrastination is one of the greatest dangers that we face. What did when Paul in his preaching, what was said to him when I, ha when I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. We're never told that that convenient time came. I've heard it said, it's not original with me, but obviously, but it did give me some pause, is that procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God owes us another chance to do what we should have already done. Think about that for a moment. And that's what Paul is warning of here. He's trying to get these brethren uh, to understand that as long as they live with these hardened hearts and continue to reject the truth of God, that they too are going to incur God's wrath. And we need again to remember who he's addressing here. One, he's addressing Jewish converts, which we're going to see later in the text here in chapter 2. And he's also addressing the Gentile converts. Now, we're going to be getting into some things concerning the uh, patriarchal dispensation and then the law of Moses and some of those matters. But the point in whichever you're talking about is that both Jew and Gentile alike were guilty of sin in violation of God's law. And that's what Paul is establishing here uh, in these statements, in this argumentation. Uh, now notice when he continues... Here, after quoting from Psalms, verse 7, he says, Eternal life to those who, who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But, there's the contrast, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So to the point concerning the Jewish converts who are being addressed, and again, I've I would encourage, especially as you get further into the book of Romans, do a parallel study of the book of Hebrews. And what you'll see is the Jewish rejection of Christ. We see that, of course, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see it in the book of Acts as well. There in the early days of the church. But the issue was that some of them were trying to hold to the laws and the customs of the Old Covenant while simultaneously professing to be Christians. And of course, Paul here in Romans, and he's going to do the same thing in Galatians, is going to show that they could not have it both ways. 
but again, we need to remember the certainty of judgment. Notice again, he shows uh, verse 7, the reward for those who do good, and then likewise, the reward for those who do evil. Have we thought about that in terms of judgment, that either way, there is going to be a reward? Uh, Jeremy, would you mind to read for us, if you would please, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. And this, too, will establish there in Romans 2, when Paul talks about storing up wrath, Paul, in this second letter to Thessalonica, is going to show what, give us an idea of what that wrath looks like. Seven through nine. Correct. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I'm sorry, was that first or second? Uh, second. Okay. You're fine. All right. I, all right. I appreciate that. So there's some idea, and of course, there are many other passages that speak of judgment as well, and we could probably have an entire class just on that uh, subject alone. But as we, as we move on here uh, with our remaining time, notice twice in that text he speaks there, the Jew first and also of the Greek, showing that judgment is going to come on all. And it's in that context in verse 11 that he says there is no partiality with God. It's going to be the same for all. Uh, do we have any questions, comments on verses 1 through 11? Milton? And it was very difficult for some of them to grasp, otherwise he wouldn't have had to have written about it so extensively. Uh, but that is, uh, that is very true. Uh, the Jews had become very accustomed to their idea of favoritism or partiality. And then we see the Gentiles being brought in. Remember John, uh, John 10, Jesus said, Other sheep I have not of this fold. Uh, probably referring to the Gentiles. And so that would have been a bitter pill uh, for some of them to uh, swallow. And that's why he writes some of the things here that he does. <coughs> So, thank you. Uh, any anybody else? All right. Well, we'll go ahead and go ahead and continue on uh, verses twelve through twenty-nine. The rest of the text. Uh, he is going to talk about the law and judgment. Uh, we come to verse twelve, and he's going to be talking, I believe, primarily. Uh, if not exclusively, to the Jewish converts. Now here he says in verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by law. Well, who has sinned? Well, he's going to show chapter 3, all have sinned. So that would be everyone. Now notice 13 he continues, for the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Sounds a lot like what James says in James chapter 1 when he says to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's one thing to hear something, it's another thing to act upon it. And that's the distinction that he is making here with that. Now, there is a lot of confusion for some reason 
about the things that he is going to say uh, here in verses 14 and 15. Let's read it and then we'll talk about it a little bit. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law and law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. When he says the Gentiles who do not have the law, what law is he talking about? Law of Moses. There we go. I see somebody's been studying, so good job. I'll give a little extra credit there for effort. Uh, but kidding aside, that's what he's talking about. So what he's saying is, is he's reminding us that the Gentiles were not subject to the law of Moses. Now let's be clear. That is not to say that they were not subject to any law. They absolutely were. You can go back to the time uh, preceding Moses. You can go back and read through Genesis. And it was established a long time even before the law of Moses. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, etc. Those principles had already been established. Uh, we see that with Abraham, for example, in his time in Egypt with Pharaoh and Sarah. You know, you, how did they know that it was wrong to commit adultery? They didn't have it written. God has always had a standard. All right, so uh, he goes on. When he says, not having the law are a law to themselves, is he saying that they made up their own moral standards? No, he is not. But what he is saying is that they were not the recipients of God's covenant, the written law. Now let's consider uh, this as well. We need to establish first that the law of Moses, it was for Israel. Let's make no mistake about that. And by Israel, we mean the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to give you, I have a lot here. We will not have time to read these, but for those that are uh, taking notes uh, I'll give you these passages for reference. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 5, 1 through 21, also Deuteronomy. And... Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, also Deuteronomy. These passages all establish the affirmation that the covenant, the law of Moses, was for physical Israel. Now, I'm going to throw a wrench into that, though. How many are familiar with the term proselyte? What's a proselyte? That's it. A non-Jew who converted to the Jewish religion. And we can see likewise, under the law of Moses, the provisions uh, for that. And again, I'll give you some references. We don't have time to read them. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49. Uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 12 and chapter 18 verse 26. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 14 
and chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. So in that case, and then we have uh, later, we have, of course, the account of Ruth from the land of Moab, and we can see she obviously adapted to the Jewish religion and customs of Israel in that time. Uh, so we know that this could and did happen on some occasions. And so one who converted would be subject to the law. And in that sense, they too would be without excuse. But even for those who did not, they too were without excuse because these moral standards had already been made known to them. All right, so again, to be very clear, Paul is not teaching that the Gentiles were not subject to any law. What he is saying is that they were not subject to the law of Moses. So when he says the law, unless the context demands otherwise, that is what he is going to be referring to. Um, so then he goes on, after having established this in 17 through 29, he's going to turn his argumentation directly to the Jews. Uh, for example, in verse 17, you who are called a Jew and rest on the law, make your boast in God. That is, they in their pride and their arrogance, for lack of better terms, they had come up with the concept that that was all that they needed. All they had to do was keep the law. But then notice, he goes on uh, showing them to know God's will, approve the things that are excellent or good, being instructed out of the law. And watch this, confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. That is, they had all of this confidence. But then he's going to continue. He's obviously not finished yet. He asked them this question, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Well, that goes right back to what we just looked at at the beginning of the text. Who are you to judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself or you who judge practice the same things. So here he is going to get into the law. You who say, <clears throat> uh, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you still, you who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do, your, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? What he's establishing is that even though they had the law, they themselves did not keep it. It was written. It was revealed to them. It was taught to them. And they still did not keep it. And of course, he's citing the Ten Commandments here, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, so he's going to go on, and now he is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, it is, <clears throat> as it is written. All right, and that citation uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 5, and then you can also uh, correlate with it Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 20 through 23. All right, and so why was the name of God blasphemed? Because they did not keep the law themselves, though they were instructing others 
in it. So we can see here he's already given warning to the Gentiles. He's established that the Gentiles were under law as well. And now he's establishing that despite the fact that the Gentiles had not kept their law, the Jews, his own kinsmen, whom he's going to address in great detail in chapters 9 through 11, had not kept the law themselves. Now, obviously, there's application uh, in this for us as well. Well, what would that be? Well, we being under the law of Christ and the new covenant, we too need to be careful that we do not become arrogant. We need to be mindful that if we are going to teach and instruct others, as we should, per the teachings of the New Testament, that we ourselves are doing what we ought to do and abstaining from that which we ought not. We need to remember uh, Romans 2.21 2.24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We do not want to live in such a manner that those outside the body of Christ will speak ill of the Lord and his church. Then as we continue on uh, here, 25 through 29, He's going to speak of the matter of circumcision. He says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He's going to remind the Galatians, Galatians 5, 3 through 6, that if they're going to keep one part of the law, they're obligated to do all of it. So Paul is telling, in essence, he's making the same argument here using slightly different language. But the point is the same. He's telling them that even if they do this, and of course the law of circumcision is established in, uh, was established with Abraham, and then we see it codified in the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus, for example, the eighth day uh, after birth. But he's telling them that if they do this, but they don't keep the rest of the law, then he's telling them that their circumcision is of no avail. He's going to go on, therefore, another therefore, if an uncircumcised man, that would presumably be a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are transgressors of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Uh, Jeremy, I've got one last passage I would like for you to read for us, if you would, please. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, and verse 11. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. All right, thank you. And that uh, continues uh, there through about verse 12, but you're fine there, Jeremy. Uh, so Paul, in talking to the church of Colossae, uh, likely predominantly Gentile converts, he's showing... Here that the circumcision, notice he says, made without hands, that is, that which is not physical, 
does what? He refers to it as being of the heart. All right, so what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2, here at 25 through 29, is that when it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, it matters not whether one is Jew or Gentile, but what does matter is whether or not he is obedient to the faith subject to the law. Now keep in mind, when Paul wrote this, the new covenant in force, that being what they were subject to, they all having been baptized, we'll see chapter 6, for example. All right, so we need to understand that. So what Paul is doing here, most likely, is that he's looking to, considering that these were already Christians, he's looking to their past conduct. But he's making that application and reminding them of where they had been and then he's going to show them where they need to go. And so we'll see that as we continue on uh, in our study. We've got just a few moments left here. Uh, do we have any additional uh, questions, comments, anything we looked at there in 12 through 29? All right, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just say this and then we'll uh, go ahead and close out. So when we look again at 25 through 29, what I think is the most clear is that salvation is not contingent on lineage, but rather on what? Our faith our faith in Christ, and our obedience to the gospel message. Remember again, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. When the new covenant came into force, the old abolished, all Jew, Gentile alike were subject to the new covenant. That is what is in force today, and that is what will be in force until the Lord declares time to be no more. All right, so again, uh, I will be out of town next Wednesday, and God willing, uh, Doug will be filling in force in, uh, in covering chapter 3. I'll make sure we get on the same page there concerning, the, concerning that, so there's no uh, confusion about that, but God willing, uh, in a couple of weeks we'll get back. I look forward to covering chapter 4 with you. And we're finishing a little early, but I appreciate your attention once again. And I guess we'll go ahead and stand dismissed.